Good morning, church, and welcome to Abundant Life. For those in the room with me or those who are watching or listening online or through a podcast, so glad that you guys are part of this as well. Uh, if you're new with us, we are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others, and we're so thrilled that you're here. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I wanna give you a little bit of an update on some things that have been happening in our community that are super exciting uh, before we get into the message today. At the end of the last series, uh, I did a challenge to you guys on generosity, and I challenged you to plan your generosity in advance, because I don't believe that you are accidentally going to be a generous person. I think it takes a, a, a commitment up front, and so because of that, uh, we challenge you to do automated recurring giving using a tool called PushPay. And, and, and if you're here with us, you remember this, and we even said, if you will take a step forward with us, we'll take a step forward with you. And so we tried something that I'd never tried before, but we said, here's the deal. Uh, we will commit $100 to a nonprofit of your choice if you start this with us uh, in that week that we did it. Again, having no idea what kind of a response we would get, and I was amazed to find out that 79 families in our church took a step forward and did this, which means we got to give a bunch of cool donations to a lot of different nonprofits doing incredible work for the kingdom. And so I wanna show you a little graphic here that gives you a perspective of what some of those are, and all of these guys are getting checks wondering, what the heck is going on, why is this church writing us a check, and, and this is super cool uh, because uh, they all got to be blessed by your generosity, uh, and so God is just moving in radically new ways and cool ways, and so yes, thank you for taking us up. If you're going, wow, that's awesome, I wanna, I wanna plan generosity, I, I don't wanna miss it. Uh, you can use that tool, go online, use PushPay. Uh, it's an incredible resource, my family uses it, I would encourage that for you as well. In addition, at Easter, if you were with us, uh, we did a special Easter offering, which was above and beyond what we normally do. And I said, here's the deal, for Easter, uh, we're gonna go above and beyond picking an, an organization called Embrace Oregon, who is tackling the foster care uh, crisis in Oregon in particular and doing incredible work. And so uh, we raised money for them. Originally, we gave them a big old huge check for 65 grand. More came in, so the total amount was 75 grand that we were actually able to give them, which that alone is worth applauding. It's amazing. But here's what's so cool is, I keep getting updates from them because that was not like a little teeny, like, oh, thanks, we're encouraged. That's like a we can do different kinds of ministry type of a gift to them. And, uh, and God is opening doors for them in radically new ways. They sent me a video this week that I wanna show you that's just an update on something that's happening. Now, one thing I need to, to preface of this video, uh, Embrace Oregon is kind of like the, the major organization, and they've got another one called Every Child. And this is another you know, a group that they're doing, another tool that they're using to help uh, raise you know, awareness and tackle uh, the, the, the foster care crisis in our state. Now, he's gonna reference every child here. He's referencing the organization, not literally saying every child. So if you don't understand that, they'll get a little confusing. But I wanna show you just a quick update on how God is using your generosity from Easter. Check this out. Hi, Abundant Life Church. This is Brooke Gray and Ben Sand. We are here to tell you some really exciting news that is a direct result of your investment and partnership with us. Over the last couple of months, we've been in conversations with Oregon's leadership in the House and the Senate and the governor's office, as well as leadership at DHS. And we have come to an agreement that is really exciting. Starting July 1st, every child will be taking over the full responsibility for the recruitment of foster families 
for the entire state of Oregon. Your investment helped us to get into this position where we are now going to serve children and families in ways never seen before. As you may or may not know, Embrace Oregon is the Portland Metro affiliate of Every Child, which is operating across the state. And so your partnership here in your local community is not only elevating the work of Embrace, but is helping us to take the innovations and the customer service and the relational support that we've been able to provide through Embrace statewide. So thank you for your investment. Thank you for caring so well for the children that are in your local community. And thank you for allowing uh, us to partner with you in serving the kids and the families in our community in new and innovative ways. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. This is what a generous church looks like, and you are literally changing the state of Oregon. So I hope you don't go like, oh yeah, what's the point of church? Like you are being the hands and the feet of Jesus in real time, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this community with you guys, so way to go. All right, I could keep talking about that, but we gotta move on. Uh, go to your journals, we're gonna go to week two uh, of our series. I encourage you, if you've got a journal, if you brought one from last week or got one this week, uh, go to week two. This is a great series to take notes on because uh, you're probably gonna have some questions or like, whoa, what, what on earth did he just say? Uh, and so we're gonna encourage you to write that down, dive into this later with your life group or in your own time of study, encourage you to do that. In your Bible today, we're gonna be in Job chapter one. That's in the Old Testament. So I encourage you, if you've got a physical analog Bible, get that out and get your spot there. If you've got a Bible app on a phone, could you get that out as well? Now, I don't know what his mom called him, but we call him Job, all right? That's how it's spelled. Uh, it's a little interesting, uh, but it's right before Psalms and Proverbs, and so if you wanna go there, encourage you to get your spot, and we'll be there in just a second. Last week, I began this series, uh, and I encourage you to watch that if you missed it, because it'll give you context as to why are we doing this? Why are we going through misquoted verses of the Bible? Is it to make Christians feel bad for quoting the Bible wrong? No. Is it to make us smarter than the church on the street? No. Uh, this is so that we can experience Jesus in new ways. And so that is why we're doing it. If you missed it, I encourage you to go to Facebook or YouTube. You can watch that. It will give you the foundation as to why this series matters, why this is important, and why we're gonna dive into what we're gonna dive into today. Now, I also wanna give you a little setup to hopefully uh, help this land better. Um, we have a number of axioms as a church staff that we operate by that help us uh, interact with one another. And one of them is, is called uh, Embrace Open-Handed Conversations. And what that means is that there's a number of times where uh, a conversation might be a little uncomfortable to have with someone else on staff. And so we would just say, can I have an open-handed conversation with you? And what that means is that the other person would literally listen with their hands open. Now that might sound su super dumb to you, uh, but it changes something in the way that you hear. See, norm normally when someone's challenging us, we listen like this. Okay, go ahead, try to convince me of what you're saying. And we're going, no, let's just be teachable. Let's be open and go, I may not understand it, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to actually hear what you're saying. And so we have this as a, just an axiom of how we have uh, sometimes difficult conversations. Now, ironically, uh, I heard through the grapevine that that axiom was misunderstood, and someone thought that uh, open-handed conversations meant uh, that they had to stand in front of our staff uh, with open hands, and I got to go slap their hands if they did something wrong, <laughs> which sounds awesome, but not what that axiom is. 
And so our axiom is just, hey, I wanna listen well. And so sometimes changing your physical posture helps with that. Now I'm not gonna literally ask all of you to open your hands, but at least metaphorically, can you do this with your minds? Uh, because I'm gonna, uh, throughout this series, uh, I'm gonna present some ideas differently than you have heard them before. And, and your you know, natural reaction is like, no, 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 that's not what that means. I just wanna encourage you just to reflect on it, to process it, and if at the end of each of these weeks you go, wow, Jeremy is out to lunch, I disagree, you are welcome to disagree. Uh, go back to the way that you thought of them. I just wanna at least encourage you to consider uh, what I'm gonna walk us through, because I think there are better ways of understanding each of these passages, and I want to uh, share those understandings with you, and so hopefully you can listen with open hands. Sound fair enough? Okay, so let's get into it. So Job chapter one, if you're with me, we're gonna begin reading in verse one. If you've never read the book of Job, it's a story about a guy named Job. It's really simple. And so we get to see a little snapshot into the life of Job. Uh, a lot of scholars believe it's one of the earliest books in the Bible. And so this goes way back. And, and so it kind of help you understand uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, but we get the setup to Job uh, right in the first few verses. It says this. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. Okay, so Job's the good guy. He loves God, he's pursuing God. That's the kind of guy he is. Verse two, he had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest Man among all the people of the East. So Job is one of those guys, he's the guy everyone else compares themselves to. Like how, how am I doing relative to Job? You, everybody has one of those guys in their life, right? Like you kinda, you benchmark it off this person. That's Job for everybody. I mean, everyone's looking at Job like, Job's just a good guy, he's, he's just like sharp, and, and man, God has just blessed him with everything. Man, I wish I could be like Job. And then at the beginning of the book of Job, you have this really bizarre, uh, even theologically bizarre conversation between Satan and God. And, and Satan makes this argument to God about Job. And he says, well, yeah, of course Job follows you. You've blessed him. Why wouldn't he follow you? I mean, you've given him everything he wants. He's the richest guy around. Uh, of, of course, you know, he follows you. And then Satan makes this uh, argument. I bet if he didn't have that, he wouldn't follow you. And God goes, I'll take, up, take you up on that bet. I bet he would follow me. And so God allows Satan, this is very weird, allows Satan to afflict Job with a number of things as long as he does not kill him. And so at the beginning, if you're reading this, you're going, okay, so here's this guy that's got everything, and he's going to go into this guy that's got nothing, and that might seem like a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Like, how is this guy that's such a standout going to swing the pendulum? Like, what are the odds that it would happen like that? It reminds me of the Willis Tower Skydeck, which if you ever heard, this is a, a tourist attraction in Chicago. Uh, it's this little building you can step into outside uh, of the, the rest of the structure. And so if you've ever seen this, you can literally go in there and it's all glass all around it, and you're 103 stories up, and you can just look out and you can experience this, and every year, 1.7 million people go and they do this. It is a thing, if you've ever heard of it. Now, I want you to consider whether you would do this, but before I ask that, I want you to see what the view looks like from inside of it. So check this out. 
That is what you see when you get to ready to step out onto the glass and just have glass all around you. Now, let's have a show of hands wherever you're at. If you're listening to this in your car, go ahead and raise your hand as well. Uh, how many of you would, would step into this? Come on, let's see it. Okay, we got maybe half of our crowd here. Uh, that's, that's pretty great because you're thinking, well, this is terrifying, but you know it's safe. I mean, you know they did all the math, the algorithms are right, and so it's, it's terrifying and it's scary, but you know that you're gonna be okay, right? Except that it cracked recently. And so here's a photo of the floor that's shattering. Can you even imagine? You're standing there, you're like, guys, I did it! 103 floors up, let it, <laughs> I mean, literally, can you imagine the profanity that had to come out of the mouth of whoever was standing there that moment that they begin to realize, this is how I die. It's right here, 103 floors up, this is how it all ends. I mean, you're thinking, what are the odds? But you know, because you're so high up, because you're in all glass, that if, if it goes bad, gonna go real bad. I mean, you got nothing helping you, it's gonna go real bad. That is what our friend Job is gonna experience. It's like, what are the odds? But if it goes bad, it's gonna go real bad, and everyone's watching. So to say like, you know that celebrity culture, like we kind of like root for celebrities to do bad, to make us feel bad about, or good about ourselves, you have this with Job, of like, oh, look at Job's everything, and all of a sudden, Job is gonna have this catastrophic fall, that Job is gonna have all, and then people are gonna come out of the woodwork with their opinions, on what's going on. Now, I don't have time to get into all the verses. I encourage you to read the whole book of Job. Uh, it's incredible, but let me summarize for our, our, our purposes today. Job loses his oxen and his donkeys and all the servants that, that went with them, he finds out from a messenger. Now again, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? These are just some animals. In this day, this is his way of making money. This is his retirement account. This is like all of it wrapped up into you know, these animals. That was the way that he would survive. That's the way that he would make money. He loses all of the oxen and the donkeys. Then he finds, a messenger tells him, all your sheep and all the, the servants that went with them, they're all gone. He's like, wow. Then another messenger comes in. Hey, all of your camels and all the messengers or the servants with them, they're all gone. And so and essentially, hey, your whole financial livelihood, gone. Your retirement, gone. Like you are now poor. You have nothing. You are not the wealthiest man around. And if that wasn't bad enough, then it gets personal. Another messenger comes and says, all 10 of your children have died. Can you imagine in one, in one you know, moment processing, you have lost 10 children. All of your kids have died. And he has to absorb the weight of that. And then throughout the, the book, he loses his health. And he's gonna be so miserable, so in agony in his health that he just wants to die because he's in that much pain. Now, ironically, uh, he gets to keep his wife. <laughs> you don't know where I'm going yet. He gets to keep his wife, although I suspect he would have traded her for one of the things that he lost, because in chapter two, she tells him, Job, curse God and die. Which if my wife ever said that to me, I would just say, honey, that is not helpful right now. You know, like, <laughs> I got a lot I'm working through, that is not a helpful thing to say, but that's what she says. Clearly, words of affirmation, not her love language, you know? And so he's gotta deal with all of that, and then his wife's telling him, oh, just go out and die. What's the point of all of this? And so after all of that, Job says his famous lament. Uh, if you're with me in chapter one, begin reading in verse 20, and this is 
the misquoted verse of the day. At this, Job got up, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, no doubt, you've probably heard this idea. Uh, this has become a huge idea in uh, Christian theology. Uh, you hear it in funerals a lot. I hear it often when uh, a disaster happens that someone doesn't know how to explain. So like a baby dying or something that you go, oh my goodness, how on earth would this happen? And we say this because we say it when we don't know how to make sense of it and we put all of the blame back on God, right? Well, God gives and he takes away. I have no idea why God would do this, ask him. And uh, if you were growing up in church or you've been in church for a while, uh, we used to have a worship song that made this a mantra, and I grew up singing this, you give and take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're like, yes, this is how God works, everybody knows this, he gives and he takes away, that is what Job taught us. So here's my question, is this the way that God really works? Well, let's put it into a uh, more normal relational uh, situation to try to process this through because a lot of times when we're thinking about God, we, we turn all of our filters on a different setting and so it's hard to like process it. But imagine you've got a friend, a close friend of yours, it's a guy, and he tells you that he's just met the woman that he's gonna marry. And you're like, really? And he's like, yes, she's the one, she's amazing, I'm telling you, I'm gonna marry this woman. And so you, you, you know, you're investing in your friend, you're like, tell me about her, why? He's like, she is beautiful. We're like, oh, okay, obviously, I, I you know, assumed you would say that, but, but like, what else? Like, what else about her? And then your friend says to you, oh, man, she's so amazing. She gives and she takes away. <laughs> now, is it just me? Or is anyone else gonna have a problem with that? Anyone else gonna go, hey, bro, uh, yeah, look, I don't think she's the one for you. That sounds a little creepy and a little manipulative. Like, why is she giving you things and then taking it back? Like, keep fishing. You can find someone better. I wouldn't land there. And he's like, no, she's amazing. Like, no, that just doesn't sound healthy. But for some reason, when we attribute it to God, we go, oh, that's so cool that God does that. Now, I was thinking of, it sounds weird in a relationship, but you know where it does fit? Tax season. The... The government gives and takes away. May the name of the government be praised. You know, like, it just fits there at tax season. That's where it belongs, not with God. Uh, oh, what are we doing? Uh, I would like to submit that uh, this is not the way that God works, that we've been misquoting this verse for a long time. Now, we, we process this through and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jeremy, God disciplines, you know, and yeah, absolutely, God disciplines, and, and God's a good father, God's a good mother, both of those aspects are included in the person of God, and, and God disciplines us, uh, and Hebrews 12 talks about this, but what you have to realize, and if you read through the book of Job, this is not parental discipline, okay, and if you attribute it and go, that's what this is, you have to understand, you are missing the story of the book of Job, this is evil, this is not God the Father disciplining Job for, for Job's own good. This is the presence of evil that Job is having to deal with. And so we have to figure out what is God's role ultimately when it regards evil. And that's a whole sermon series by itself. But let me just ask it this way. If your car is stolen, did God take it away from you? As you process that, wow, I lost my car, can't believe that. Does your, you know, your, your 
bigger way of processing through going, well, God must have taken the car because God gave me the car and God gives and he takes away. So for some reason, God took it from me. Or imagine some of those things that we have a hard time explaining logically. If a woman is raped, is God to blame? Did God cause that to happen? When you try to process that, would you say, well, I don't know why God wanted it, but God caused it. When a little child is murdered, do you go, well, God took that child away. See, you begin to realize your theology matters in real time because this is how we process pain in our lives. And for many people, they would say, yes, that is what God does. God does those things, but, but you know, that's just how God is. And, and this is similar to what Job's trying to process. Like, yeah, God can take away. But what kind of a God does this actually create? You see, it might sound worshipful when you read Job's first you know, uh, iteration of this, the Lord gives and takes away. But if you keep reading the book, you realize his view changes. Now, I encourage you to go to chapter 9. You've got your Bible open. And I want to show you how this, this beginning pious view that Job has of God, you're so great and you're worth worshiping and you give and you take away, how it changes the longer he has to process this. The longer that Job has to make sense out of what is going on, he, he suddenly doesn't feel the same way that he did in chapter one. He begins to feel differently after he has to consider this. So let me show you Job chapter nine, we'll begin reading in verse 22. He says, it's all the same. That is why I say God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? So what's happening now is Job is taking what he had internalized for him, God gives and takes away for me. Now he's looking at the world around him and going, okay, so if he does that for me, then he does that for you and for you and for you and for you. And so now he's seeing the world around him going, okay, God is the source of all of this. Now, I wanna look at Job's logic here and go, would you agree with it? Would you agree, let's break it down, that God really destroys the blameless and the wicked? Is that the biblical character of God? That, that's what God does, he destroys the blameless. Does God really mock the despair of the innocent? Is that a trait of God's, what God likes to do? Does God blindfold judges? So when there's injustice in the culture around you, well, that's because God blindfolded them. Are all of these things true about God? And if you would start to go, whoa, it makes me uncomfortable, you have to realize this is all the same line of thought that Job is going through, that God gives and he takes away, and ultimately, if God works like that, then God is a monster. That God is responsible for evil, and Job begins to have this reaction to this monstrous view of God if you keep reading throughout the book. Let me show you a few examples. Job chapter 10, verse 20. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. He, he views like, God, you are so the antithesis of joy that for me to experience joy, I need you to give me a moment of reprieve because if you don't, I will never experience joy. Now, again, let's go back to our friend you check in on him and his dating relationship. A couple months in, hey man, how's it going with this girl? She gives, she takes away, how's it going? And he goes, oh, if I could just have her leave me alone for one day, I could have joy. <laughs> Ditch the girl. I mean, like at what point are you saying, you know what, she sounds great. No, she does not sound great. If this is what it's producing in you, why would you still be with her? 
And this is what Job is experiencing with God. Job 21. Who is the Almighty, Job says, that we should serve him? Why why does he deserve to, to have that? What would we gain by praying to him? I mean, Job is checking out. He's like, look, if this is how you are, why would I serve you? Why would I pray to you? If you give and you take away, what's the point, God? And Job begins to process all of these questions. Job chapter 30, verse 21. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. So again, Job now realizes God must be directly responsible for all of this evil. See, that's what Job's theology produces. It's a God who becomes our enemy, a God who is cruel, who is not worth worshiping, and who we want to stay far away from. And all this is consistent with the theology of God giving and taking away. But here's the great news. I believe Job's theology is wrong and that God is not like that. You see, we know what Job didn't know in this story. We know it from chapter one that it is not God taking these things away. It is Satan. And God has allowed Satan to do this. And so Job thinks it must be God. His friends think it must be Job. But only the reader knows it's not any of those. It is Satan. That is why all of this is happening. God's not like that. You keep reading, you get to the end of the book of Job, and and God finally responds after all of this talk, and everybody has their own theories of what's going on, and God responds. And you might expect God to say, look, Job, I have every right to take away whatever I want, right? That's how a parent would talk. I can take away your whatever. That's not what God says. God doesn't say, I have every right to take it away. He says, I'm not like that, and you don't understand what you're talking about. And we should go, oh, okay, well, what's, what's the point here? And so you get to chapter 42 with the, the end of it, and this is the really profound, like, this is the point of the book of Job, and yet most of us never get to chapter 42. Why? Because so much happens in the first couple chapters that you can feel like, I know the story of Job, and then the rest is like these weird, uh, you know, dialogues and monologues, and like, what is going on with all these conversations that most of us don't actually finish it before we think, I, I kind of know what happens in the book of Job. But if you don't get to chapter 42, you have missed the point of the whole story. Let me show it to you. Verses three and six say this. Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Epiphany, wait a minute, I didn't know what I was talking about. Things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now you may not know what the idea of repenting is. Uh, it's kind of a church concept or a spiritual concept. It's the idea that you are going one direction and you have a moment and you go, whoa, I'm gonna repent. You turn around and you go the other direction. Okay, so when you repent, you're basically saying, hey, this is what my life was, and when you meet God, hopefully there's a repentance moment, I turn, and now I'm going a different direction, the direction God wants me to go. Job has this. What is Job repenting of? His view of God. He's repenting of the fact that he attributed evil to God, that he thought God was the kind of God that would give and take away. Job repents of the very thing that many of us quote today. And I would suggest that we should take this example and go, oh yeah, we shouldn't quote the beginning of the book of Job without realizing Job got over that. Job worked through that. Job didn't continue to believe that. And so we today have falsely attributed 
many forms of evil to God, just like Job has. And, and if that is you, then it would be a great example to follow Job and go, whoa, I spoke of things I did not understand, and now I repent of those. Like, God does not work like that. And so if you're going, okay, how do I process this through? How do I make sense of this? Here's something to write down if you got your journals out. That's a simple way of wrapping your mind around how do I have a better theology, a better understanding of God? This simple phrase, God is always good. If you start there, uh, you're gonna keep yourself from a lot of weird conclusions that you might get to. And so if you would say at a very logical level, is it good if someone gives it to you and then just takes it away and gives it to you and takes it away and gives it, you say that's not a really good trait in someone, then it probably should be challenged if God does that. We should, we should be skeptical about that, right? And so we should look at like Job and go, does God really work that way? And, and so if you are, know that, hey, some point in your life you're gonna experience evil and loss and, and you're gonna deal with suffering, this is something to write down and remember for when you get into that place to go, you know what, God is always good. But you might be thinking, Jeremy, I'm already there. I'm already in that place, I'm already dealing with that loss that maybe you walked in here today and there is incredible pain in your life. And so to you, I would nuance that a little bit and I would say it like this, God is still See, if you, if you can't really get to that place because, man, you're just hurting so bad, then cling to this one, that even when it doesn't seem like it, God is still good. And this would keep us from a lot of the weird ideas that we often get about God. So when we wanna know what is God like, we, we know what Job didn't know, that God, God doesn't give and take away. God looks like Jesus. God looks like Jesus on the cross who chose to suffer for us. So you know what, I don't want you to experience what you should experience, I will step into your place, I will experience it. That is what God looks like, not a God who gives and he takes away. As the author uh, Brian Zand says it, at the cross we find the death of the monster God. By this I mean it is at the cross of Christ that our wrong idea of God as a vengeful monster finally dies. Among the many meanings of the cross is this one, in the crucified body of Jesus, we see the death of our mistaken image of God. God is not a monster. God does not have a monstrous side. God is whom we find in the word made flesh. See, God, this is the great irony, this is the great epiphany if you uh, follow Jesus, is that God looks like Jesus, which then shows you we follow a God who suffers with us. So when you are experiencing loss, when you are experiencing pain, you don't cling to, well, God gives and takes away. You cling to, Jesus, you are here with me. You are experiencing this with me. That is what we know about God. Now you might be thinking, well, hold on a second, because yeah, maybe God didn't cause it, but God allowed it. And we have to be honest about that, that in this story, in the story of Job, God permits evil to happen. And I would say absolutely he does. And so we have to wrestle with what do we make of that? Why did God permit evil in the story of Job? Why does God permit evil in your life? And if you find someone who can give you a confident answer to that question, run. Because that is not how God works. We don't know the answer. I don't know why God said yes to this in the story of Job. I don't know why God has allowed evil in my life. I don't know why God has allowed evil in your life. I don't know the answer to that. But I know that God looks like Jesus and that if you are suffering, he is suffering with you. He's there with you. 
In addition, the Apostle Paul adds this for us in Romans 8, 28. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so not only if you are suffering, not only is God there with you, but God is going to turn evil upon itself, and he's going to bring good out of that. Now, we don't have the imagination strong enough to make sense out of this verse. Because we're like, there's no good that can come out of it. And God's like, watch me. Watch what I do with this. And one of the coolest things theologically that I, I think you find is that not only is God good, but God turns evil on itself. And so when evil looks like it is winning, when evil looks like it has won, all of a sudden it begins to implode from within. And that is the way that God works in regards to evil. It might look like it has the day, but just like the cross, everyone thought, oh, Jesus lost. And evil thought, I have won. And then it's the great reveal that, nope, Jesus is still in control. God is alive, and you cannot beat him like this. And that is how he works in our life today. Now, you might think, okay, that's theologically helpful, but how, how do I wrestle with the emotions of this and the, the, the way that whatever I'm going through is, is affecting me right now? There's a, a Christian counselor named Bill Reitz, and, and Christian counselors have to live in this space, right, of, of, hey, God is good, and here's the biblical understanding of God, but here's what you're going through right now, and here's a pain, and here's a hurt. And so he says three things to people in the midst of pain, and I'd encourage you to write these down. Incredibly simple, but so helpful if you're going, I don't know how to process this through. I don't know how to, how to move through it. I've always held on to God gives and takes away. And if I don't have that, how do I work it through? Let me show you this, the three things that he says. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is sovereign, which means God is in control. God is still all-powerful. Um, this is not beyond God, okay? So again, he might permit something, but God is still in control. Number three, God has good intentions toward you, which means that whatever God allows in your life, he does it for your good. And again, we don't have the imagination to comprehend why would he say yes to some of these things? Why would he not stop them? But he does it with good intentions. And ultimately, he's going to bring good out of it. He is only the source of good. He's not the source of evil in our life. Now, as we process this through, if you have read through the book of Job and you have made it all the way to chapter 42, you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's one verse that seems to say the opposite of what you're saying right now. And this is a very weird verse, but I want to show you. Uh, Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now you might go here and go, well, doesn't this just prove that Job was right? That everything that Job said was right? And, and if you conclude that with this verse, I would say, you've completely missed the book of Job. Uh, because we already know that Job wasn't right. Job repented of it. Job finds out, you know, things that we knew all along. It was not God doing that. Job has to eventually get there. So what on earth is God talking about if he's not talking about Job's theology? Here's my answer to it. I think he's applauding the posture that Job has. See, Job approaches God with really bad theology. But I don't know about you, but a lot of us have done that. A lot of us have approached God with some bad theology, things that we thought were true about God, things that we said to God that weren't actually true about God, things that we had been told were true about God. And so Job initially processes with God like that, but he has a posture where eventually he fixes it. Eventually he gets to a much better place where God can reveal some truer things about himself to Job because Job never leaves. 
Job never, you know, hey, I'm done with you, God, forever. I'm out. He talks about it, but he doesn't do it. He sticks around, and he keeps working it through with God. And that should be a reminder for all of us, especially in this series, is as we work through our theology, the thing that's more important than a perfect theology is a relationship where you keep going to God and going, hey, I gotta gotta keep refining this. I gotta keep working on this. And so I might have some things that aren't true about God, but if I keep this posture and I keep the communication open, God can handle your bad theology. He can handle the things that you say to him that aren't true. But his goal is to get you to a better realization of who he is to experience him as he really is. And Job had a chance to do it because Job stuck around and Job did not give up. See, our theology will always fall short of the perfection of God. We will always have things that will confuse us. But the goal is to have a relationship with him that you are constantly growing, constantly learning, constantly experiencing God in new ways as Job did. Now today, some of you may uh, be here and you're going, look, I, I I am in the midst of, of some of the most pain of my life. And, and what's going on right now is, is, is overwhelming. And to you, I would encourage you. It's a reminder that God is good, God is sovereign, and God has good intentions toward you. That as you process this, as you go, why is this happening? Do not cling to the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Cling to the fact that God is good in the midst of this, that God is with you in your suffering, and that God will ultimately bring good out of it. And for those of us who go, hey, that's not really me right now, I'm not dealing with that, it's a reminder for us that you will have a moment where you're gonna question this. You're gonna have a moment where something's gonna happen, where the inevitable, what are the odds will actually take place in your life, and you're gonna have to cling to something. And so cling to a more accurate view of a God that looks like Jesus. We're gonna transition now as I pray and close, and we're gonna have a time of communion. And as we do that, uh, our band is going to sing and lead us into a song about the goodness of God. And I wanna encourage you, in this moment, you're gonna see both of these realities. We're gonna celebrate the fact that Jesus suffered for us because we have a God that does not watch our suffering from afar, does not cause suffering, but he meets us in our suffering. And at the same time, we're gonna sing about the goodness of God because we know that this God that looks like Jesus is ultimately good and is going to bring good things out of it. And so in this moment, as we remember the cross, We get to refocus our eyes, not on a God that looks like a monster, but on a God that looks like Jesus. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, many of us, we need to repent of our bad theology, of ways that we have attributed evil to you. And like Job, maybe we've said some things to you that aren't true about you. We thought they were true, we heard they were true, or... It was the only way we knew how to make sense out of what we were going through. And yet, like Job experienced, I pray that you would keep leading us to a more accurate view of who you are. That you are not a monster God who takes things from afar and watches us suffer. But you are a God who meets us in our suffering and ultimately turns evil on itself and you bring good out of it. And so as we process this world around us that is full of brokenness, that is full of evil, it's full of hurt. May we approach you and remember you look like Jesus. And remember the cross of who you are and how you solve problems. You step in our place. And you suffer first. So God, may we process through all that we're going through in this community. All that we see in the world around us. In light 
the person of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said,